Welcome to EAN Cast, your weekly source for education, research, and updates from the European Academy of Neurology. So, good morning, everybody. Um, my name is Federica Montagnese. I'm an adult neurologist uh, based in Munich, and uh, I have the honor to chair this year the EAN Scientific Panel. Muscle and neuromuscular junction disorders. And uh, this uh, month, we will uh, be producing a um, season of, uh, of podcasts. The, it will be in total four episodes uh, uh, on the topic differential diagnosis in the muscular dystrophies. And uh, today, we will start with the first episode on uh, gene mutations and gene variants. And to address this uh, topic, I have the pleasure to have with me uh, Magdalena Mrozek. Uh, she is uh, also an adult neurologist uh, who is actually working uh, at the Department of Neurology at the University Hospital in Basel, uh, Switzerland, and has uh, performed research fellowships uh, at the University of Newcastle upon a time and uh, University of Aarhus, Denmark and has uh, a special interest uh, in the application of high-throughput uh, exome sequencing laboratory methods uh, for um, clinical diagnostic purposes uh, uh, in the diagnostic of uh, uh, undiagnosed muscular dystrophy patients. Uh, happy to have you, uh, Magdalena. I think we can maybe start our conversation by discussing how the uh, uh, advent of new uh, technologies as next-generation sequencing, uh, bioinformatics, uh, optimized databases, uh, maybe also lower costs, impacted the use that we uh, now have on uh, genetic tests for neuromuscular diseases. Uh, yes, so in the recent years, uh, we had a chance to live in a very interesting times. So uh, when the high throughput techniques uh, came into the clinics and also to the research, we created a lot of data. And uh, this, of course, enabled better diagnosis of the patient, but also brought uh, some problems regarding interpretation. So uh, it came out that, for example, to interpret if the variant is benign or pathogenic or likely pathogenic, it is not that easy as it used to be. And uh, some big databases were created just to uh, enable to aggregate data from many countries, from people from many different uh, ancestry backgrounds. And uh, that is how we are moving forward. Yes, so th this was in short. <laughs> I see. So um, how do you think that the clinical data still play an important role in the interpretation of the uh, genetic results? So how would you like the cooperation with the clinician to look like? Yes, so I think that clinical data are still very important, especially in, when we create a lot of genetic data. And often it is very difficult to interpret the pathogenicity. So this is the point where the good phenotyping plays a crucial role. And uh, especially if there are many variants that could play a role, here the cooperation is most crucial because uh, it's not just about giving the patient list of the variants. It's more about uh, also directing the diagnosis uh, 
And this can take place only in a cooperation between clinician and genetist. So uh, sometimes it is crucial that, for example, uh, the genetist who has the molecular results comes back to the clinician, asks some targeted questions, or even gives the list of variants and helps and asks for help in the interpretation. And now we have also, especially in neuromuscular diseases, some additional methods. They are not invasive, for example, muscle MRI. And uh, here, if, uh, if there is some uncertainty between two variants, this can really uh, help to distinguish between two diseases. Thank you. And uh, also on this aspect of collaboration between clinician and genetics, so what uh, sometimes uh, we, we struggle with uh, is uh, the uh, phenotype ontology in a way. So we have also specific, um, let's say, keywords that uh, can help the geneticist also to interpret the genetic results. And there are also some tools like Phenomizer or other similar tools that might help the clinician and the geneticist also to look if what we found is in a way related in a way to the patient symptoms what's your what's your opinion about that so i think that these tools are very helpful the problem is that the data are so big now that it's not possible to interpret every single variant every single phenotype so if there is any possibility to for standardization of the data standardization of the filters i consider it very important okay so um how would you specifically address the problem of uh, interpretation of um, heterozygous variants in uh, a patient, maybe with a recessive pattern or a variant uh, of unknown significance uh, in uh, in a patient, so more more specifically in our day? Yes, so uh, this is a very interesting question, especially for the symptomatic heterozygous, because it was thought that if we will have better diagnostic methods, we will be able, for example, to identify the second variant, but uh, or some structural variants. And now we have uh, not only exome, but also genome. We are doing trios, we are sequencing the whole families. And still, this is the case that we are, for example, not able to identify the second variant. And uh, this is also a good question. So I don't consider this still close. Maybe there will come some new methods, but uh, this is more like a discussion case. So it's also very important for the patients for, uh, because uh, for the family planning, for the consoling. And at the moment, I would say that it is still work in progress. So, uh, but it is an important issue and uh, what is unexpected that even with the better diagnostic methods, we, don't, we still don't have a good answer for it. I see. So probably you consider these uh, heterozygous variants together with the clinical data and paraclinical data. And if it perfectly fits, then you would probably think of uh, reassessing the either the pathogenicity or reassessing the genetic data after some years to maybe see if uh, something new comes up, but you would not consider the case closed. Yes, I wouldn't consider the case closed, especially now because uh, the thing is that a lot of variants, they are 
changing their classifications over years. We have data from other po different populations, from some minorities, and uh, it is important to reassess the data. But on the other hand, the laboratories, they shouldn't be overloaded with the requests of reanalyzing the data. So uh, at the moment, this is not the standard that there is a obligation, legal obligation for laboratory to reassess the data, I don't know, every year. But still, some of the laboratories, they, um, they reassess their own data and especially variant classification, for example, in five years, just to be sure that they are not missing something. And over recent years, a lot of variants, they change their classification, for example, from unknown significance to pathogenic. So in this case, it is crucial to reassess the data. And how does it work in your laboratory? So do we clinician need to have a reminder in five years time for our patients to ask again our lab to perform the, the analysis? Or do you uh, have a reminder and then uh, uh, if something pops up, then we'll, we'll uh, communicate with us? So it depends because I used to work on a research project where I reassess the data from my own curiosity, but it was a research project. It works very differently in the uh, clinical diagnostics lab. Uh, for example, here in Basel, the data are reassessed, let's say, every five years, but still it, there is nothing like a star standard. It's more like a suggestion. As far as I know, in every lab, it works differently. I see. And maybe if we also come back to the uh, issue of the um, heterozygous variants, how do you think also that uh, epigenetic factors may play a role in such cases? So maybe there is no need to find a second variant and uh, epigenetic factors play an important role than in pathogenicity. What is your opinion about that? Yes. Uh, so uh, epigenetics, it is something that we still are progressing to discover, actually, especially in the neuromuscular disorders, because over many years it was thought that uh, epigenetics has a rather minor role in the neuromuscular disorders, and now it is seen that actually even the methylation clocks and methylation levels in some patients were investigated, and there, there are some differences. And now it is thought that uh, epigenetics factors, for example, methylation, then they can play a role of a modifier in the neuromuscular diseases. But this is a topic that has to be investigated uh, in a bigger cohort. And it's also difficult to define how to investigate it. So how to collect this data on epigenetics, I think this is one of the major hurdles that we still have. And maybe one uh, other aspect that I also find very uh, important is uh, how to improve the access to these powerful genetic tools also in countries that do not have these um, technologies. So are you aware of uh, collaborations of possibility for these countries to uh, also access uh, genetic analysis uh, if they don't have these possibilities? Yes, so over recent years, there were increasing number of collaboration between, like, for example, Western European countries or US and uh, countries of low and middle income. Uh, so the problem is that in the low and middle income countries, there is uh, no uh, access to the technology. So the sequencing 
it's not possible to be done there. So as part of this collaboration, the patient's DNA is sent to other countries, sequenced there, and uh, then analyzed, often analyzed also in collaboration with the low and middle income countries. So I consider it very important, especially because in uh, our genetic data, we have mostly data from the European and uh, American populations. And we are missing a lot of data, for example, from some African ancestry population or even from South America. So I think that these projects are very, very important. Are you talking mostly about uh, research collaborations or because as far as I know, there are also some international laboratories, at least for some diseases that are also co-financed by patients' organization, for example, that uh, offer also the possibility um, of diagnostic, genetic diagnostic tools for low-income countries beyond, in a way, research collaborations. Um. So, yes, mostly I am aware of the research collaboration. I also heard about this diagnostic collaboration, but I don't know the details about it. And uh, what about, I know that you are also very active in the European Society of Human Genetics, so how these kind of collaborations uh, also help in the advancement and progression of the genetic diagnostics? European uh, Association of Human Genetics, we do a lot of education about genetics, uh, about standardizing the methods and guidelines, and I am part of the young members of the European uh, Association of Human Genetics. Uh, and uh, we had a very interesting project as part of a young investigator forum with uh, African Society of Human Genetics. It wasn't directed in the neuromuscular disorders, but mostly in increase, increasing the collaborations between uh, Europe and Africa. And uh, actually it was a big success because we uh, organized a forum in Cape Town last year, but later progressed to do some webinars online. And uh, I think that these types of collaborations are very important also for the young geneticists, young clinicians, because in the future, this increases the possibility to perform also bigger projects together. And also, as you told, for example, diagnostic projects in cooperation. Yes, so I think uh, these educational opportunities are really uh, important uh, uh, to inspire also the younger generation uh, to approach the uh, difficult field of uh, genetic diagnostics and also maybe to learn these skills and then uh, use them in their home countries so that uh, uh, more possibilities are available then and uh, there. And uh, this is uh, something that it's important to share also within the European Association of Neurology as a, as a possibility. I think that it's, of course, very difficult to cover all the aspects of uh, genetics in the diagnostic in neuromuscular diseases, but we have touched some of uh, the most important aspects, I think, and uh, interested persons then probably are going to analyze more in depth the aspects that we have uh, only briefly discussed. And I thank you very much for uh, uh, joining this uh, podcast. And uh, I'm happy to meet you then uh, in the upcoming con Congress. Thank you, Federica.
This has been Ia Yangcast Weekly Neurology. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcatcher for weekly updates from the European Academy of Neurology. You can also listen to this and all of our previous episodes on the EAN campus to gain points and become an EAN expert in any of our 29 neurological specialties. Simply become an EAN individual member to gain access. For more information, visit ean.org membership. That's ean.org backslash membership. Thanks for listening. EANcast Weekly Neurology is your unbiased and independent source for educational and research-related neurological content. Although all content is provided by experts in their field, it should not be considered official medical advice.